So, we are going to be talking about grace today. So I'm going to get my notes ready. But before we can dive into grace, I want to recap faith real quick. Really, really quick. If you were here the last two weeks, we've been talking about faith. And if I were to put you on the spot, don't panic. It's okay. I know you studied for this test. What is faith? What was the definition I was working with the last few weeks? Who knows, remembers that one? Somebody should have pulled an all-nighter last night and studied for this test. You didn't know there was going to be a pop quiz today? What was the definition of faith that we were working with over the past few weeks? Believing in something you can't see. We talked about that. The, the one that I was talking about the last few weeks was believing... What, what's that? Yes, brownie points. I love it. Believing and acting as though the character and word of God is true. It has two aspects. Faith has not just the inside belief. It starts with the belief, what goes on in the inside, what you process in your mind. But then it becomes an action because what goes in and what takes root in your heart comes out in the way you act, the way you talk. My dad's euphemism for this was what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And so it starts with your heart, what's on the inside, the information you take in, the things you hold to as true. And then based off of that, that becomes your worldview, the way you act in the world around you. So it's really important to have a good belief that you put your faith in something that is trustworthy and that it doesn't just remain as information in your head, but it actually comes out in your fingertips and it comes out in your words and the way you talk and the way you walk. See, God has demonstrated his love and his faithfulness to us. He is worthy of our faith. He is what the Hebrew word we talked about was emet. Emet is like stable, steady, true, faithful, um, reliable, all good words. But it basically speaks to he is solid. He is worth putting your faith into. He has shown himself, he has demonstrated himself as faithful through nature and science, testimonies. You, you all have testimonies of, in your life or read other testimonies, personal experiences, and you get to see a whole storyline of the Bible where he makes promises to people hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years before their ultimate fulfillment. He is faithful not just in the short term, but in the long term. So it's been demonstrated that God is faithful. He's worthy of your trust. So I put forward to you, and sometimes it may not feel like this, but faith is not blind. Sometimes in our specific circumstances, we can't see God, but he is faithful whether or not we see it in that circumstance. We have good reason based off of God's resume and his track, track history, we can see that he is worthy of our faith, even though we may not see it in that circumstance. So sometimes it may feel blind. It may feel like, yeah, I can't see him right now. I don't know how he's going to work in this situation. It seems really dark. There's no, there's no progression here. You may feel like there's nothing you can do, or there's overwhelming, but it doesn't matter if you see it. You can look at his history of those types of situations, like with a Gideon, or a Joshua, or a David, or a Deborah. You have these famous characters that also were in similar situations, that didn't see how God could ever be faithful in it, but they put their trust in him, 
And now we have a track record in history of seeing that he showed up faithful to them, he will show up faithful to us, even if we can't see it in this specific circumstance. So it's not necessarily blind, and it's not, it's not an empty faith. We don't put our faith into God just because we think it's there. We put our faith because it's tangible. We're able to have testimonies. We have personal experiences. So it's more than just a blind faith. You actually get a chance to be involved. So as we grow in God and our relationship, it deepens our understanding. And as we walk, have you guys seen Indiana Jones, the, walk, or, uh, the Holy Grail? the quest for the Holy Grail, and uh, he has to go through the three stages at the end to get to the Holy Grail room. And one of the stages, or the traps, or the tricks, was the walk of faith. And in it, there's this big wide gap, it's open, and he has to cross from one side to the other, and he can't see anything, and so he realizes that the walk of faith, there's something there, and he throws the dirt onto the uh, what looks like an invisible path or walkway or board, and then you can see, finally, that there's something there to catch his feet. And so as he walks, he walks across from one side to the other. The board was always there. He just needed to know or, or be able to see it. And so we have this uh, cycle of behaving that we know he's faithful, we know the board's there, and we step out on faith, and as your foot is caught and you don't fall to the ground, what does that build on the inside? A little bit of more faith. You have a deeper understanding of who he is so that the next step, when it comes time to take the next step, it's a little bit easier. It's not as scary because he's already shown himself faithful. And as the cycle continues, your faith grows. You believe more, you step out on your actions, and then those actions build up your beliefs, and it cycles around. So, whoa, hold on, Steve. I thought faith and actions weren't really combined. That's kind of a gray area. In fact, we know that we are saved by grace, not of works, actions. Actions don't really have a place in the Christian faith, but it's not true. That's not exactly it. And so that's why we're going to do a little bit of a, a grace lesson today. Actions are a part of our faith, yes, but that is not what saves us. We are saved by grace. So we got to take a look at the term grace, but before we do, I wanted to share the importance of understanding terms. There's terms like we've been talking about faith, and before we dive into something like grace, we don't want to limit ourselves and not develop our vocabulary. We want to develop our Christian vocabulary. There was a uh, RAF officer during World War II and this officer um, was being spoken to by C.S. Lewis, the, the famous author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He also wrote many books, Mere Christianity. But he was ministering during World War II. He actually served in both world wars. And uh, he has a quote from an uh, officer that as he was sharing, if you want to put up the quote, um, the officer said, to him, as he's sharing his faith, he said, I've no use for all that stuff when he's speaking of theology and doctrines and terminologies. But mind you, I'm a religious man too. I know there is a God. I felt him out alone in the desert at night. The tremendous mystery. Go ahead. 
And that's why I don't believe all your neat dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, all that seems, all that seems so petty, pedantic, and unreal. So as C.S. Lewis was sharing his faith, and he was sharing the gospel and the good news, the officer says, mm, I'm not into the, the theologies, the doctrines. I believe in God. I've had a real experience with him, but I don't really do the theology, the book work. The, the, uh, he, he would be what you would call street smart, not book smart. And so he has uh, this kind of reservation about diving deep into the theologies. And, and I want us to understand that that is not where we should be. The experiences are very real, and sometimes the theologies feel less real. And so I'm going to give you an example of what to help maybe understand that. Have you been out for a walk on the beach before? We've all probably walked on the beach, right? All your five senses are engaged. You see, you smell, you taste, you touch. Everything is fully engaged as you walk along the beach. You feel the salt spray. Everything's alive. It's exciting. All five senses are going. And you're very aware of that situation. Now, let's compare that to a map of the Pacific. This is far less real than your walk on the beach. You can't smell, taste, touch. Um, it, it's not as uh, interactive. You can't interact with it like you could the walk on the beach. But although it is less real than your walk on the beach, it is based off of many people's experiences and explorers from many, many years. And they compiled all that information of their ex exploration and they put it together to form a map. And so it is a very real representation of what's going on out in the ocean and what, what the coastline looks like, where the islands are. And if you want to go anywhere beyond your walk on the beach, you're going to need a map. You're going to need some information and some experiences beyond what you've been able to just do walking on the beach. Because if you walked on the beach, you have no idea what's around the next bay. You have no idea the direction of the next island, the coordinates of the, of the coastline that you're trying to aim for. You need the map. And that's what theologies and doctrines are like. The terminologies, the, the word studies, they are like the map. Yes, they are less exciting and not as fun as the walk on the beach. They don't engage your five senses. You don't taste the theology like you would if you were uh, in, in the presence. <laughs> but... The theology doesn't equal God. It's less exciting, less real, but like the map, it shows the combined experiences of great men and women of faith. The Joshua's, the Deborah's, the Rahab's, the Ruth's, the Moses's. It combines all their experiences, just like the explorers exploring the Pacific, and it puts together a map that shows the depths of God. It shows how strong God is, but also how tender God is. It shows how diverse he can be and how specific he can be. It shows that he can be challenging to you, but also restoring and peaceful to you. It shows how personal he can be and how intimate he can be. It shows you all the range of experiences that I haven't experienced. But Joshua and Moses were able to experience God and are able to grow and learn from about his character and we can learn from their experiences. 
And so theologies and doctrines are really important because they take us from beyond the shore of experience. Yes, it is exciting to go for that walk, and it is exciting to be in the presence of God. When you're in God's presence, nothing really tops it. If you've had those moments where you felt God, and he gives you either his peace or maybe his joy, nothing is more real than that. And that doesn't mean that we can't, or we shouldn't, also have a deeper understanding of what's beyond those experiences. Who's the character behind it? So that's why we need a map. So we're going to transition from that faith word, and we're going to look out on the map, and we're going to start looking at another word, grace. Grace is undeserved favor. It's two words. Grace is undeserved favor. So if you were to break it down, grace Undeserved part is the bad news. Bad news first, we'll start with, and favor is the best news. So grace is something that is bestowed upon you that you don't deserve. So for example, a paycheck is not your employer showing you grace. If you worked your hours, you deserve your paycheck. But if you didn't go to work, say you were sick that week, but your boss decided to pay you, he is showing you grace. You didn't deserve what you were given. And so uh, let's take a look. We're going to dive into Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, let's start looking at grace. Ephesians chapter 2 is probably one of the more famous chapters about grace. Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 1, and we're going to read the first three verses. And we're going to start with the bad news, the undeserved part. Because without understanding that we don't deserve God's favor, him giving us favor means nothing. So we need to understand the part of undeserving. So starting in chapter 2, verse 1. As for you and me, we're dead in our transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So starting off, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. So there's the first part of the bad news. There is a moral standard that God has. There exists a moral standard for us to be sinning or transgressing. That means we have crossed a line done something that we knew we shouldn't have, we broke a rule, we fell short of his moral standard. So there is a moral standard. We know this is true. We all know in the heart of our hearts that there is a moral standard to this life. We all have a standard, ideal standard of behavior. All of us think that justice is good, right? Who here is for injustice? Nobody? Oh, just me? Okay. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, honesty. How many of you think that dishonesty is the best policy? Right? What about rightful possession, that you own something and somebody can't just come along and take what's yours by fourth? Thievery. We all know that's wrong. We all know the value of human life. We know that taking of an innocent life is wrong. Whether or not your parents taught you to uh, about say, th possession or justice or honesty, you know in your heart you have a conscience that tells you that you're acting according to the moral standard or breaking it. And now, 
You might say, well, justice and honesty and those things, different cultures see them differently. True. Yes, they do. What they value as being honest about, it may vary. Some cultures might, may see that honesty, for example, might argue that it's uh, appropriate to be dishonest if it protects somebody. Uh, a common uh, mental exercise would be, let's say the Holocaust is uh, around. You are hiding Jews in your house. They come to knock on your door and ask if there are any Jews in your house. Do you just say, yeah, they're upstairs, and open the door? Or how do you handle that? There may be times when you see honesty as maybe not the best policy. But the difference is, when you're in that situation, you don't think to yourself, honesty doesn't matter. You don't think to yourself, there's no such thing as honesty. You think to yourself, why or why not is it okay to be honest or dishonest? In other words, it actually proves that by making excuses, it proves that we know there's a moral standard, and by the differences that people hold, whether it's important to be just towards this group or just towards that group, or we need to be justice for this, that only proves that the underlying principle is the same. How you act it out might, might vary differently, might, might be different in the way you, you, you demonstrate justice, but you would know what justice is as the baseline. And if you are accused of injustice, let's say somebody says, hey, that's not fair. Steve, what you did wasn't fair. I wouldn't say, well, I don't believe in justice. I would say a laundry list of excuses as to why I should have been okay to be unjust. Because the principles are there, we're all aware of them. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. Flipping over. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bear witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. In other words, we have a consciousness of that moral standard, and we either excuse our actions or justify our actions based off of that standard. But there is a standard. Where does that standard come from? Where do we get this moral standard? Did, we, did man come up with the idea of, the, of these principles? No, we're made in God's image. The standard is God. The standard is God's perfection, his character, what he is. God is perfect. In fact, David wrote in the Psalms, in Psalm 18, verse 30. If you want to put that up, then I don't have to flip. <laughs> Psalm 18, verse 30, as for God, his ways are perfect. The Lord's word is flawless as he shields all who take refuge in him. So God is perfect. Matthew 5, 48, he says, be ye perfect. Oh, sorry. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not, oh, this is the wrong verse. I'm sorry. But it says, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I put the wrong one in the computer. It's Matthew 5, 48, and I put in Matthew 5, 18. But uh, it says, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The standard of where we get those morals from comes from God. They're not man-made, and they are good. They come from his character. So now that we have established there is a standard, how many of us uphold that standard flawlessly? 
Nobody. We all fall short or sometimes deliberately break that standard in our thoughts, in our actions, the way we talk, what we say. We all fall short of that. Do you know what we call that in Christianese? It's a three-letter word. Sin, right. It's an archery term. It means that when you aim for the mark, if you miss the bullseye, if you're off target, that is sin. You have missed the mark of perfection. What you're aiming at, you have missed the mark. And so we all have missed that standard. We have all fallen short. We never made it to God's perfection. In fact, it's easy to say, well, God's perfect. Nobody can be like that. But we're even worse than that. We don't even practice the kind of behavior that we would expect from others who interact with us. We don't even treat others on the highest standard that we would expect them to treat us. So not only are we falling short of God's standards, oftentimes we fall short of our own. To help you understand how short we fall from God's standard is the example of swimming in the ocean. If you got out of, uh, out of the bay and you started swimming and you were headed for the mainland, how many humans on this earth could ever make it to the mainland swimming just, just by their strength? Not one person. Doesn't matter how much you train, doesn't matter all the exercises you do, how much preparation, how well you ate, your diet, nothing, you will never be able to swim from the island of Hawaii to the California coast. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Brian's training. He's, he's doing some training in the off season. The more you try, the more impossible you realize it is. If you were to actually start going, the, the, the optimism of like, oh, I might be able to do it, quickly would fade before you're but 100 meters offshore. The more you try, the more you possible you realize it is. In fact, that's the same it is with our lives and sin. The more we try and get to that impossible distance of God's perfection, the more we realize we can't. And in fact, the harder you resist temptation the more temptation builds up. And most of us don't even know to what strength temptation can be in our lives until we are actively fighting it. It's like this. If you were to go again, to battle with somebody, when do you know that enemy's full strength? If they surrender right away? Or in a long, drown-out battle where you actually get to see how strong and experience how strong the enemy really is? Oftentimes, when we are tempted right now in our lives, it takes but a quick whisper, and it's like, oh, yeah, I might as well do it that way. It doesn't, it's not even a battle. We don't, we don't even know the depths of how strong that sin urges in us because we haven't even battled temptations. It says in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, that we are supposed to resist temptation to the point as though it were to kill you. That sounds a little bit like Jesus when he's at the garden and he's praying and, he's and he says, God, if there be any other way, and then he gets to the point of sweating blood. Oftentimes when we try and do the right thing or we try to make that gap, we try to get to the mainland, we give up right away. We haven't even, we haven't even fought the temptation. We don't even know the strength of temptation because we give in so quickly. But it, let's say you were to try. Would you even get close? No. Maybe but a few miles, because we all have sinned and we all have fallen short. In Romans 3, chapter 23, it says, For all 
have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. We are dead in this state, as Ephesians 2 says. We are dead and separated. Humanity is well aware of this problem of sin. It's not just the Bible that tells you that you have a problem of sin. All the other religions that you'll go to, if you go to uh, Buddhism, any of them, you name it, they all have a, a way for you to deal with your sin. They come up with a way that you can attempt to compensate or tip the balance of the scales of good and evil in your favor by doing such and such a good deed or working in such a way or doing this or praying five times a day or uh, going to mass or whatever it might be. There are things you can do that can tip that scale back in your favor because they're trying to deal with this problem of sin. But the difference is that's just swimming lessons. That's swimming lessons to try and get to the mainland. We can't do that. We are so vastly separated from God's perfection <coughs> that we can never make it. And so that's the bad news. Yes, we can't make it. We are undeserving of God's favor. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing. I'm sorry if it painted a bleak picture, but there's some best news coming up. Now it's time for some good news. Now we're going to flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. This is the best news. Yes, we're dead in our sins and transgressions. I'll start in verse 2, actually. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in all those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is a gift from God, not your works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So yes, it's a bleak picture. We don't deserve God's favor, but I love that sentence in verse 4. It starts with, but God. Because of his love for us and seeing that the, the pitiful swimming lessons that we're taking that are trying to reach to his attempt, he had to reach down and give something to us that we could never get ourselves. We're totally undeserving, and he had to give us grace. <coughs> Excuse me. Grace is personified in the image of Jesus. When, we're, when we look at Jesus, we get to see God is bridging that gap for us. He's giving us Jesus. He shows us favor that we don't deserve, and he gives us a way out. He had to have somebody that was a perfect person. Who do you know that's perfect? Only Jesus he needed a perfect person that he could place the sins of you and me and place it onto him and carry out the, the rightful punishment 
the death, the separation, he needed to carry that out as a just God, and he placed it on Jesus on our behalf. How many of us can tell God, yeah, we're worthy of Jesus' life? None of us are worthy of Jesus' life. But it says because of his great love for us, he was willing to give it. And Jesus was willing to resist those temptations that we gave in to so easily many, many times. He was willing to resist those temptations to the point of sweating blood in the, in the garden account. He gave what we couldn't earn. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21... Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he gives Jesus, who did not know sin, who was not separated from the Father, didn't have the Pacific Ocean between him, and he placed our sin upon him on our behalf. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, he also says something simpler. He uses a fancy word here in the King James you might know of propitiation. But in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So it's not just us. It's not just us deserving it. He has given Jesus as a gift, an undeserved gift, in our place. This is demonstrated, and we're going to take a look here at a, a, a little video here, and I think it tells the story of Barabbas really well. But this is really understood when we look at this story as Jesus is about to go to the cross. He was on trial, and Pilate found him guilty and says, but wait, before we go through with the outcome of this trial, I'm going to give you a chance to, re to let Jesus go. He says, on, on special holidays, I will re release one prisoner of my good graces. I'll, I'll release somebody to the people that the people want to free. And he gives them this option. He puts before him, before the people, Barabbas, who was a known villain, thug. It says he, he was part of the insurrection. He was a rebel. And he, somebody who definitely deserved a prison sentence, maybe even a life sentence. Whatever it might have been. We don't know the full extent of his crimes other than he was guilty. And he puts him up against Jesus, sinless. Somebody who had done nothing but take care of others. Heal, restore, give peace wherever he went. And he asks the people and he says, who do you want to let go? Who do you want to free? And the people say, Barabbas. And Barabbas gets to walk free while Jesus... The perfect man, the sinless one, is left standing there with Barabbas' guilt upon him now. And he goes to the cross in this image of Barabbas being exchanged. His sin was being exchanged and let go. He was able to walk free as Jesus took his place and walks to the cross. So, how many of you guys got the communion cups? If you didn't grab one, 
Grab a communion cup now. In fact, if somebody wanted to grab me one, I forgot one. <laughs> um, we're going to watch a, a, a quick little uh, video uh, telling the story of Barabbas here. It's a, it's a couple minutes long, but as we're doing it, I want us to maybe envision ourselves as the Barabbases. We are the ones that are guilty. We don't deserve God's favor. There's no way we can bridge that gap, and it's only Jesus that is able to, sit, to bring that together, bring that separation, and bring us back into unity. So, check out this video by Judah Smith called Jesus is Loving Barabbas. Oh, it's muted. Just hold on, maybe restart it here. Hand in hand. We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is, this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a, a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man, he's a thug, and he's a crook. He deserves the chains, and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper? What, what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We, we want Barabbas. Yeah, give us Barabbas. They give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform, welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is, but all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience in Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, or you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent, for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of the Heavenly Father. really is. That's me. 
that's you. That's us. And I felt I was reading this the other day, and I felt God speak to me. I love Barabbas. I love him. But God, he's bad. Man, I love him. And I wanted him to go free. But didn't you know that he probably would have never acknowledged the freak? Yep, yeah, but I love Barabbas. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son for Barabbas. Even the one he knew would walk away from Jesus and his free gift and never come back. He loves them. And the nerve, the call, the audacity of believers to think, I got saved by grace, but now that I'm in this deep, dark place of bondage, I better work hard to get myself out. What? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it. No, you won't. You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin. You will not overcome it, and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own marriage, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me and say, no, son, let me have it. Let me have your sin. Let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No. God, I I'm so ashamed. Give me your shame. But God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins, son. This is all we got. It's all I got, it's all you got. We can play games, we can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed, or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive, 
Let me have your sin, son. Okay. And I give him my sin. And I stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, go son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off thinking that we were gonna set ourselves free? It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If his blood is sufficient for your salvation, his blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough. He says it a lot better than I do. <laughs> but that's, that is what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. Today we're going to celebrate communion. And yes, it's a, it's a realization of our inadequacies. We can't make it. We're the Barabbases. We're the convicted, guilty party. But we celebrate the fact that Jesus took our place. And that is grace. We never deserved it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Coming to church on this Sunday doesn't make Jesus' sacrifice any more atoning for your sin. It's living, grace is now a living of that acceptance. So if you haven't, if you've never had that chance, let's open up the bread. This is your chance to experience Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. He says that this is his body that was broken on your behalf. So that we didn't have to pay that. His body was broken for us. So break. I love that Daniel actually has it, but you can like break him and then let's take his in remembrance of what he offered for us. And as the worship team comes up, let's open up the, uh, the juice. It says, this is his blood that was shed on our behalf. This is what he offered and gave to cover over for our sins. And so we do this in remembrance of him. So I'm going to close this up in prayer. If you have never experienced God's grace, maybe you feel like, I don't deserve it, or maybe you think you don't need it because you're in a good place. Either way, you are able to experience his grace today. So as I pray, we're going to invite Jesus in to your life. If you've never done that, this is your opportunity. So let's just go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that I am a Barabbas. I know that I'm so far from your standard that I could never bridge that gap. It doesn't exist in me. And God, I just thank you for the offer and the life of Jesus, that he was willing to give himself as a propitiation for our sins, the exchange for our sin upon him, and that he would take my place. He didn't have to, and all I can do is accept this gift, and I say thank you. 
And God, I just invite you into my life that I would live my life now from that place of forgiveness, that I wouldn't live under the guilt anymore, but that I would live in that place knowing that Jesus has paid it all for me. And God, as we live from that, we put our faith in that, and I ask that our beliefs and our actions would respond in the right way, knowing that your grace has been extended to us. Not because we can deserve or earn more grace, but God, because it's our response to knowing that you showed us undeserved favor. And so God, just bless us as we go from here. Encourage those that need encouragement this morning. Comfort those that need comfort. And Lord, help us to understand the riches and the depths of your grace. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.